Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined this week, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. It's been a short week in the UK because of the bank holiday, but we're going to kick off, as always, by talking about what did happen in the markets and what happened in the investment trust sector this week, Simon. Well, the UK market has ended up in positive territory, probably about 0.7% or so. The investment company sector, probably not dissimilar, to be honest. Um, The sector average discount has uh, somewhere around about 2.5%, and and that compares with an average of just over 3% for the year, so slightly narrower. But I think all things considered, it's been a bit of a quieter week, all told. Obviously, a short week, as you've noted, but um, it's interesting that the, the volume of trade going through the marketplace is considerably lower than we've seen it earlier this year. And it may be the case that people have taken the opportunity to enjoy a little bit of rare good weather in the UK, or possibly this is just the calm before the storm. But certainly so far this year, we've got we've got the market, the UK market, at least up 12 percent, and that's outperformed uh, global equity indices. Uh, whereas investment companies not quite as strong as that, probably up about five or six percent year to date. Well, you can probably tell it's been a bit of a quiet week by uh, some of the stories that make the headlines during the week. And this week, there's uh, been a lot of coverage, at least in the United States, about a company called AMC Entertainment Holdings, which is a cinema chain in America, which has been up and down, not like a yo-yo, but like a, a kind of a boomerang into space, I would say. Uh, it's gone from a, a company which is nearly bankrupt to being having a, a, a value of uh, several hundred million, uh, driven by the apparently by the same crowd of people who drove up uh, GameStop early in the year, um, which some people interpret as being a sign of uh, investor exuberance, but uh, I would more interpret as being uh, more akin to the kind of stories you see during the silly season, which is uh, what happens during uh, quiet weeks. But anyway, it's an interesting phenomenon. That stock rose 100%, I think, during the week and then crashed by about 50%. And it's up 2,200% so far this year, though even nobody, I don't think, actually expects it is actually worth the value that the market is putting it on at the moment. So it's more of a cultural phenomenon, I would say, but interesting nonetheless. Anyway, let's talk about uh, the FTSE. You mentioned the FTSE market, obviously, and how it's performed this year. And we've had some further changes in the indices. We flagged those up last uh, last week. But uh, what have been the main changes announced this year? That's right. So just just to explain, the FTSE index has a quarterly review system. And in fact, the quarterly review uh, in June is actually the annual review. And that's a slightly different set of parameters. They consider the liquidity of the various constituents of the FTSE all share. Invariably, we see more change through that annual review. In terms of the investment companies sector, uh, Foresight Solar and JLEN Environmental Assets uh, will both fall out of the FTSE 250 and go into the FTSE small cap. So they're still constituents of the FTSE all share. Um, But it's probably at the other end. It's those companies dropping out of the all share and therefore the small cap altogether or perhaps being promoted in. So in those categories, we've got SME credit realisation. That's going to fall out of the all share basically because it's contracted. The size of that particular investment company is contracted following a series of returns of capital to its shareholders. And in terms of uh, the promotions, well, there are four investment companies that will enter the FTSE all share. And they are PRS REIT, uh, Gore Street Energy Storage, which I think is one that we've talked about in weeks gone by, uh, Odyssean Investment Trust, which is actually one that we talked about last week, and then the final one, Mobius Investment Trust. So those four names will become part of the FTSE All Share, and that's effective uh, on Friday the 18th of June. And that is worth watching, actually, because invariably there is 
quite a bit of trade around those uh, changes to the index. Obviously, there are still, well, index buyers, passive investors uh, invariably have to own those companies. Uh, and so we do see uh, quite a lot of trade around those and perhaps some share price volatility as well. I think it's worth noting just in passing, I mean, you mentioned that the two are dropping down to the small cap index, uh, Foresight Solar Fund and JLEN Environmental Assets. Uh, am I right? I think they're both actually coincidentally managed by the same management group. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Foresight. Uh, JLEN moved across there a, a little while ago. And in fact, I think Foresight, the actual management company, uh, my recollection is it, I think it's been promoted up into a, um, the mid cap in their place. So trading places. The management company has gone into the, into an index and two of these funds have come out, which is a kind of strange coincidence, I'd have to say, rather than anything else, given the characteristics uh, that determine the outcome of these changes. OK, so that's very interesting. And we'll move on and talk about some corporate activity. We're going to start off with the proposed merger between BH Global and BH Macro, in which I have to declare I have a slight personal interest, having been a shareholder in one of those two trusts. So tell me, tell me what the latest is, Simon. Well, again, we've been talking about this one over the last uh, month or so, and it really has uh, moved on a pace. So the news this week is that the boards of BH Macro and BH Global have agreed heads of terms in respect of the combination of those funds. Uh, and basically, BH Macro will be the continuing entity uh, and BH Global will effectively will roll into it. But there's a few kind of bells and whistles on this one, which I'll kind of cover off briefly. Um, so basically, this all kind of kicked off after Brevin Howard, the investment manager, wanted to and in fact got through shareholder support an increase in the management fee. But as part of that deal, um, there was a promise of a, a tender offer. So the way they're going to take that into account in terms of this particular deal is that shareholders in BH Global can opt for, for either cash or to roll over uh, into BH Macro. Um, and so that's effectively the liquidity event there. In terms of BH Macro, they will have their 40% tender offer, which was always part of the deal. So there will be quite a bit of capital, one suspects, being returned to shareholders. And then eventually you'll have what's left being merged together. So this is all now going to take place. It's obviously subject to a number of shareholder votes. And it looks like it's going to be by the end of August. So we've still got a few months to go with this one. The tenders will be all completed ahead of that. But uh, yeah, in terms of mergers, this one has, has really come from nowhere, literally about a month or two ago, uh, has really pushed on. Yes. And it's a result of pressure from some of the larger shareholders, including uh, Investec, I believe, were one of the prime movers here. Uh, so what's happening to the share price of these two trusts? And what would we expect to happen between now and the completion of all this uh, business. Yeah, so both those investment companies are trading on a, a small discount at the moment, say around 2%, broadly speaking. And that's not out of line uh, in terms of the, the price that uh, shareholders are like to get if they go down the cash option or the tender option. So uh, both of those are done at a small discount, uh, just over 2% of NAV. And frankly, the share price reflects that. So I think given that liquidity event and given that the uh, the tender price will be a 2% discount to NAV, you'd probably expect the share price to, to stay in line with that. Otherwise, there'd be people, sort of a few sharks manoeuvring around and making a making a little turn. That would seem to be logical to me. But afterwards, I guess we'll have to wait and see how big this combined entity actually turns out to be. But of course, it will be carrying on doing pretty much the same thing as it was doing before. And uh, hopefully, we'll be able to justify the much higher fee that they're now charging for the, the privilege of being a shareholder in this combined entity. Let's move on and talk about events at 
an interesting trust called the Scottish Investment Trust. Perhaps you can tell us what the news is there, Simon. That's right. So this week, the board of the Scottish Investment Trust announced a review of future investment management arrangements. Uh, and this followed a, a period of indifferent performance, basically. So in 2015, this particular uh, investment trust, which is a self-managed investment trust, adopted a high conviction global contrarian investment approach, as the announcement noted that uh, led to underperformance, certainly against the MSCI All Countries World Index. And as a result of that, the board have uh, initiated this review. Uh, an outfit called Stanhope Consulting have been appointed to assist with the review. And I think my recollection is that they were involved in the review of Temple Bar last year, which resulted obviously in Temple Bar moving. Um, but basically, established fund management groups were invited to submit proposals designed to deliver, and I quote, above index returns through a diversified global portfolio of attractively valued companies with good earnings prospects and sustainable dividend growth. So a few boxes to tick there. But the announcement did point out that the board will uh, consider these proposals, assuming that they're received alongside current management arrangements. And there is no certainty that any changes will result from the review. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, clearly anyone pursuing a value uh, investment approach over the last five years has had a significant headwind, as we've discussed before. Growth investment has had the bragging rights and then some. But clearly uh, the board felt that after a period of five years where um, there was a significant underperformance, and despite the fact that the last few months have seen uh, an uptick in the, this particular investment trust performance record, as you might expect, given the changing market conditions, but they still felt it was right to consider other options. Um, not least because the fund has been trading on a quite an ingrained discount level for some time. So um, probably 10, 11% discount is not uncommon. And that's despite the fact they've had an active buyback program that since the start of 2015 has seen the fund buy about 39% of its share capital. So a lot of capital uh, returned to shareholders and yet still that discount remains wide. Yes, and that's unfortunate. I mean, this trust, I looked it up, it dates back to 1887 when it was originally launched. So it's been going for a fair few years, it has to be said. That's something like 134 years on my reckoning uh, coming up. But it's also, this is uh, slightly unusual in the sense that this is one of the few, I think, uh, remaining investor trusts in the sector, which is self-managed. In other words, it hasn't delegated or isn't, isn't uh, delegated and promoted by a fund management group per se. So how does that work? What is, what is the difference? And can you give us some other examples of trusts that operate in that way? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. So at one stage, there were a number of self-managed investment trusts, and now there are, there are very few. So Alistair McKinnon or Ali McKinnon heads up the investment team there, and they're effectively uh, employees of the investment trust. They have quite an experienced investment team there, uh, and they are responsible for this portfolio, and that's that's what they do. So it's not just a case, as, as is usually uh, the case when you come to review uh, the investment management arrangements of an investment trust, and you're looking at the fund manager's performance record as a third-party supplier, really, and comparing what they can provide against uh, some of their peers. You're actually looking at uh, people being employed by this investment trust, and it's their, their jobs and careers. And, and someone like Ali McKinnon has been there, um, I, again, off the top of my head, I think since about 2002, 2003. So he's been a long-standing part of this story. So it's quite a tough decision. In terms of who else is self-managed, well, Alliance Trust for, for a number of years were absolutely a self-managed investment trust. But over the last three or four years, they've uh, delegated their investment management to Willis Towers Watson and pursued a, a multi-manager approach. But before that, they had an investment team uh, based up uh, largely in Dundee, 
uh, and very proud of their Dundonian heritage. Uh, but obviously they moved on. Uh, and thereafter, they're probably just a small handful. So you could look at someone like Max Ward at Independent Investment Trust, who is effectively running his uh, portfolio there. But uh, you might say that it's slightly anachronistic, uh, Scottish Investment Trust, but I don't really think that's a problem per se. I think it's its performance that it's really given the board reason to pause here and consider the alternatives. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've had this period when, when value as a style has underperformed dramatically against uh, growth alternatives, as we know, the Bailey Gifford uh, kind of thing. And um, that's been uh, quite marked. And yet, um, I mean, with Temple Bar, the consultants came in and they uh, basically recommended continuing with a value uh, style. Do you think that uh, could be the same outcome here? I mean, it would be very unfortunate to change the style completely if you come to a point where perhaps this uh, value growth dichotomy is about to reverse. Uh, what do you think about that, Simon? Yeah, I think you make a very good point. And, and that's almost, for me, the kind of the, the board starting point. I think they have to kind of work out which way they want to go with this. I suspect, I strongly suspect, there'd be no shortage of, as they put it, experienced fund management groups who understand the investment trust sector, who are willing to throw their hats in the ring on this one. But almost before you get to that stage, I think you have to have a good hard think about you know, which route to pursue. And I don't think it's a, it's a value V growth, because as we all know, life is more complicated than that. And there are a lot of, you know, balanced mandates or balanced strategies that undoubtedly consider. But I think it's, it, they need to work that out first, as did the board of Temple Bar. And then they decided, as, as you just mentioned, to kind of stick with that value approach and then look for a, a manager accordingly. But they have given some colour of the board in terms of what they are looking for, uh, as I ran through just a few minutes ago. So it'll be very interesting to see how this one plays out. Because, I mean, it's, it's a sizable trust, isn't it? I mean, it's been going for a long time, but it has 700 million or something of assets at a market cap. Obviously, uh, I don't know what that is at the moment, but uh, somewhere around there anyway, obviously, after taking account of the discount. So there'll be, as you say, a lot of competition to get your hands on that if you're a, another fund management group. Do you think that any of the other uh, trusts in that sector who are kind of competitors will want to have a go at this as well in order to bulk themselves up further? And do you think that would be a factor the board would take into account or not? Or would they rather see a fresh face come in? Obviously, someone with a good track record, but uh, how, what would you think about that? Yeah, I, again, you make a very interesting point. And, uh, you know, it's I, I make it in terms of net assets about 600 million uh, or so at the moment. So you're right, it is a decent sized mandate. And I think with that kind of size, you've got your own critical mass. So the size is not necessarily a problem. Though it's interesting, we have seen in the last year or so a number of uh, mergers. Well, we just talked about one, the Brevin Howard funds. But you know, even thinking back to last year, we saw Perpetual Income and Growth merge or, or roll into Murray Income, uh, and there have been others as well. And I think that does offer the prospect of larger, more liquid vehicles. I think one of the factors here, I suspect, is the is the dividend, is the yield for Scottish Investment Trust. So on a historic basis, it's yielding about 2.9% at the moment. So that is a differentiator. Uh, within its current peer group, the, the global equity peer group. But I wonder if the board would, might be minded to think of a, a solution that worked well for its, uh, you know, I think it's an AIC dividend here as well off the top of my head. I think I'd be minded to come up with a solution. And maybe if they were looking for a merger partner, which uh, who knows if that's what they will consider, that maybe look at some names in the global equity income peer group, for instance, who've got more comparable dividends. But possibly we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, as, as the board have made clear, they just want to consider their options. And I think it's quite good. In fact, it's better than that. It's, it's, it is good corporate governments to put these announcements out there to be clear with shareholders in the marketplace what they intend to do um, and really weigh up all the options carefully. 
But you wouldn't expect the market, obviously, to form a judgment about that until they know what the outcome is. So I guess we'd have to wait. Do you think there'll be any impact of people looking to buy into this situation, you know, ahead of the outcome? Do you think that might happen? You know, possibly. I mean, the, the share price or certainly the rating of the of the investment trust hasn't really moved on the back of this announcement. You know, to your point, I mean, it, it may be something, it may be nothing. You know, the, it, it may be the case that the status quo remains uh, and, uh, you know, life goes on. Equally, you know, there may be a very in-demand manager appointed and, and you see a significant re-rating. We can think of instances where that has been the case over the last few years. But I, I think the board, if you look at the names, the, the people on the board, they're very experienced. Uh, they understand the investment trust sector very well. Um, they're involved in a number of different other investment trusts. So I think they will come to a very wise and well-informed decision. Indeed. Well, I have just double-checked and, and Scottish Investment Trust is indeed one of the AIC's dividend heroes. has 37 years of history of continuous dividend increases. So that will obviously, as you say, be something that uh, others coming in might want to, will have to consider quite carefully as well as the board. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about fundraising. And let's kick off with uh, Aquila Energy Efficiency. What has been the outcome of their efforts to launch uh, a new trust? Well, they were successful, uh, is the headline. They raised £100 million gross proceeds, and that was actually lower than what they were aiming for. I think they were aiming for about £150 million, but they got it away, which is the main thing, and the, the shares are up and running. I think they're, they're trading about 101p at the moment. So that's the good news. So just to remind people, this particular investment company, they're aiming for returns of between 75 and 9.5% per annum. Uh, obviously, the, the dividend will be uh, a key element of that, and that's going to be a minimum of 3.5p uh, for their year-end, 31st of December 2022. And then thereafter, they'll look to increase it up to 5p. But uh, again, you know, very interesting investment approach. So lots of talk of energy-efficient lighting, smart building, metering services, uh, and so on and so forth. And that's obviously chimed with a number of investors. And in fact, you mentioned Investec Wealth earlier in the context of the Brevin Howard Funds. Uh, and according to some of the disclosures that we've seen, they've, they've been quite heavy supporters of this one, investing just short of £26 million pounds, uh, in this particular fund. And Aquila themselves have also been quite big supporters. So they've supported 19%. So you've got some quite big shareholders on the uh, register at launch. But no doubt what they would hope is that they're, they're up and running and they can prove their investment case. And then over a number of years, look to, to grow from this base. Yes, I think we mentioned that Aquila is a, I think it's a German uh, fund management group, isn't it, which has been doing in this area for a number of years. Uh, so it's not like a kind of Johnny come lately. It's uh, got a long track record. So I guess they may be slightly disappointed by the amount they managed to raise. But uh, as you point out, there's plenty of opportunities to come back and uh, issue some more shares in due course if they continue to trade at a premium. That would be something I'm sure they'll be looking to do in due course. The ticker for that one, by the way, is going to be a-E-E-T, and also A-E-E-E. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, it doesn't slip easily off the tongue. But that's because I think there are two there are two quotes, aren't there? There's a sterling and a, and a euro quote, because this is a trust which I think is operating in euros, if I'm right about that. OK, so let's move on and talk about another potential IPO. And this is something called the UK Residential REIT, uh, which obviously uh, you're pretty clear what that's trying to do. They are looking to invest in this residential property sector, which is becoming one of the themes of uh, a lot of people talking about at the moment. So tell us more about this one. 
That's absolutely right. So they're, they're targeting £150 million gross proceeds through their IPO. And again, it's a diversified portfolio of affordable residential properties uh, in the uh, UK rental market, but outside of prime central London. So the IPO will be for 150 million ordinary shares, effectively a pound a go, but there'll also be some consideration shares. So the idea being that they will issue paper in respect of a portfolio of seed assets. So the expected market cap following the acquisition of those seed assets is 200 million pounds. So they've got a seed portfolio of 145 million pounds lined up, and that covers 28 properties, uh, which comprises just over 1,200 residential units. Uh, and a few other bits and pieces, and they're all outside of central London. And they've also got a, a pipeline of uh, that they uh, value at £440 million. So there's obviously quite a lot of scope to deploy capital. The yield is a big part of the story, as one might expect. They're targeting a dividend yield of 5.5% from the 1st of July 2022, in other words, when they're fully invested. And their net total shareholder return is actually 10% per annum. So it's going to be managed by an outfit called L1 Capital UK Property Advisors. And in fact, they're, they're putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. They've made a commitment of £5 million into this. And in fact, up to £50 million of equity rollover will come from existing L1 Capital funds. So we'll see how this one plays out. Uh, we haven't seen the prospectus yet. Uh, it's, I think it's due out quite soon. But the results of the IPO is expected to, to be announced in mid-July. Yes, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned before that uh, one of the companies that got promoted into the All Share Index is PRS REIT. Uh, and they are operating essentially in very much the same market. They're, they're doing something slightly different, I think, in terms of how they go about doing it. But they are looking to develop private rented estates outside central London, which obviously is still very expensive. And this is uh, deemed to be a potential growth market. Uh, you know, if we look back to the early Victorian Edwardian periods, we see all those mansion blocks dotted around London. They were all backed by the Prudential and people like that or in institutions back in the day, all by wealthy, uh, wealthy individuals. Uh, and then after the war, it all kind of ground to a halt. And we ended up in a different world where um, a lot of rented property is owned by buy-to-let, individual buy-to-let owners and so on, not not uh, institutionally funded or indeed institutionally managed. So I think it is a growth area given how expensive houses are. And I think, uh, so this is interesting that again, this is another example of, of almost, dare I say it, a kind of me too approach to to launching investment trust. You've seen how well the RS REIT has done. It's uh, I think got about, I can't remember off the top of my head, about 800 million, something like that. It's in that sort of size. So it's a substantial animal. And here's something else coming along, which is in the same sector. And um, uh, I think some of you who may have listened to the um, interview I did with Peter Spiller at Capital Gearing the other day may recall that they've been investing in residential property, uh, not just in the UK, but elsewhere. They see that as a potentially good safe haven in if we move into a period of inflation. So it's interesting to see how this one goes. So that's two items of fundraising. Let's move on and talk about uh, some results now. And we'll move on to Edinburgh Worldwide. That is EWR, the ticker, which is... Uh, a Bailey Gifford Global Smaller Companies Trust, and uh, they've had some results out. That's right. They had their interim results out for the six months to the end of April, in which time their NAV was up just short of 25%, and that compared with a rise of 30% for the S&P Global Small Cap Index. In share price terms, they were up about 24.5%. And this fund has traded well for a period of time, and that's allowed quite a large number of shares to be issued at a premium, uh, they had 44 million shares issued in the period, raising about £160 million. But in terms of how they performed, um, some of their key 
contributors included Tesla, which we know all about, uh, a company called QuantumScape, which provides batteries for electric vehicles, Upwork, which is an online freelancing and recruitment services company, and Appian, which is enterprise software developer. They're also putting some money into Unquoted. About 8% or so of the assets uh, are invested in 11 private companies, including uh, Graphcore and Oxford Nanopore Technologies, which is a name that we talked about before. And in fact, in the period, they made 11 new holdings or invested in uh, 11 new holdings, and that included three private companies. But the emphasis is very much as you'd expect, given Bailey Gifford and Grove and the small cap on, on kind of three key themes, software-based tools providing scalability, uh, the opening of, of space as an attractive commercial endeavor, and products built on science with the potential to transform. So uh, if you do have a, a spare few minutes over the next few days, I would recommend Douglas Brody's uh, report. It, it's a little bit like an episode of Tomorrow's World for people who remember that show, but certainly there's some very interesting comments, not just in terms of the prospects for the portfolio companies, which are absolutely fascinating, but just in terms of markets and how he and, in fact, Bailey Gifford view the kind of the bumps and swings. I mean, he talked about inflation and growth, and he suggested he wondered if anything especially fundamental has occurred and made the point that actually some of the aggressive swings in market sentiment that we've seen this year, they view as more of a source of opportunity than as a source of angst. And so this one sits, as its name suggests, in the global smaller companies sector. I mean, they're not all particularly small, these companies, it has to be said on a global mandate. They quite often have quite large uh, market capitalizations. Um, but just run us through who else is in the sector and how it's been performing. So the largest uh, investment trust in this space is, is Smithson, which is, um, I think, again, an investment trust that we talked before, so part of Terry Smith's stable. And that's £2.7 billion now market cap. And that has been a regular issuer of new shares. Um, the Bailey Gifford Fund, the Edinburgh Worldwide, which is now up to £1.3 billion, uh, So a decent sized fund. And uh, unsurprisingly, that has performed very well. It's got the strongest uh, long term track record in the peer group. Uh, but then you've got uh, BMO Global Smaller Companies, which has been around a long time. Uh, Peter Ewan's the manager there. Um, not too far off a billion market cap, uh, that particular fund. And then you kind of drop down the size scale a little bit. North Atlantic smaller companies that we discussed, uh, I think probably a week or two ago when they had their results out, a bit a bit more of a kind of specialist offering, uh, 600 million or so market cap. And then right at the bottom, in terms of size at least, Scott Gems uh, with a market cap of 42 million and trading out on about a 17% discount. So none of these things you're buying for yield, obviously, they're Hardly any of them got a uh, yield of much significance. Uh, these are out-and-out growth companies normally is what you're you're getting if you go for this sector, I would think it's fair to say. Uh, and presumably, as far as Bailey Gifford are concerned, this one sits as an alternative or a complement, if you like, to some of their uh, their trusts like monks that invest in larger companies on a global scale. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's quite an interesting investment mandate. So they, they try to invest in companies with market caps below $5 billion, which, which sounds a lot of money and clearly is a lot of money, but actually opens you up to kind of mid and small caps. But that's at the time of investment and they are able to kind of run their winners, which is obviously a key Bailey Gifford theme. So I mentioned Tesla, for instance, clearly that has a lot larger in terms of its market cap scale of, of $5 billion, And that's been in the portfolio for a number of years. And so that's the pattern. But in terms of the number of the names of the companies that he's backing, uh, I would suggest that if they do come off, it wouldn't be a great surprise to see them popping up on the holding list of, of monks or Scottish mortgage in years to come. So let's move on from the global to UK. And we've got uh, three or four trusts we can mention here. Why don't we kick off with the one that we mentioned already, which is uh, 
Edition Investment Trust, the one that's just been promoted into the All Share Index. And we have talked about this quite a lot in recent weeks, but we might just round it off with the results. So yes, just to rattle through the results, they had their annual results out for the year ended 31st of March, uh, in which time their NEV was up 53%, which sounds very impressive, undoubtedly is, but actually it was behind their index over that period. So their index, the NSCI X Investment Trust Plus AIM index was up 71.5%. And I suggest you they probably uh, did quite well in the vaccine bounds, that index. Uh, share price terms up 43%, uh, and the commentary reflected the underperformance was a result of net cash on the balance sheet. That was about 8% or so on average, and the avoidance of volatile sectors and those heavily impacted by COVID-19. So again, I would suggest to you that timing is quite important. You think this period started on the 1st of April 2020, at which point the markets weren't quite at their low, but certainly for, for the, the benchmark index, they were at a low point and Adesian had stood up quite well, or certainly better than its comparative index at that time. But uh, the management team here, so Stuart Widdowson and Ed Wilczowski, uh, is still very positive on the names in the portfolio, as you mentioned. There was a, a couple of takeover bids they saw last week. Uh, they've added some new names in the portfolio and they've made some material further investments as well. So it's quite a, a tight portfolio, only 17 holdings uh, at the end of March. And they've been running about three years or so now, in which time um, they're up about 60, 61%. And that's double the return of their benchmark index. So let's move on and talk about another interesting trust. We've, again, mentioned this in the past, Aurora Investment Trust, ARR. What have their results been like? They had some annual results to the end of December, so 2020, so a few months ago now. But in that 2020 period, their NAV total return was down 5%, and that actually represented an outperformance. The FTSE All Share fell as we may remember, about 9.8% uh, last year. So what worked for them well? Well, it was holdings in companies such as Hornby, Ryanair, Dignity, Randall & Quilter, and Vesuvius, uh, while uh, names such as Lloyd's and EasyJet and JD Weatherspoon didn't do quite so well. But it's a very concentrated portfolio, normally between about 15 and 20 holdings. Phoenix Asset Management are responsible for this one. Gary Channon is the CIO there. And again, they're trying to do something a little bit different. This is different full stop, I would suggest, this investment trust in the way that they approach their investment and also in some of their features. So, for instance, there's no management fee on this particular investment trust, but they do get paid a performance fee as and when they perform. Uh, and they did in this particular period. And actually, they get paid in shares in the investment trust and they're subject to a lockup. I think it's a three year lockup off the, off the top of my head. They've also managed to grow through regular issuance. So they raised £12 million during the year. But Phoenix are looking to, um, they, they've got some quite large stakes in companies such as Dignity, Standard Gibbons, and, and Hornby. And they're looking to put all these stakes into a single company called the Castanel Group. Uh, and this uh, they're looking to bring to the market in the next few months. So the idea is that Phoenix is, is trying to create value. Uh, and they've also got a couple of uh, other businesses within that group. So a digital marketing and software development company. So this is, you know, again, quite different to what you'd normally see with an investment trust. But they've certainly done well so far in 2021. They're up about 17, 17.5%. Uh, and that compares to a rise of the all share, probably more like 11, 11.5%. Yes, it is very distinctive, I think it's fair to say. Uh, we can say that, the way it's managed and uh, and what it does. And that's this kind of a little bit of, uh, well, I wouldn't like to disparage it by saying financial engineering, but it seems to be trying to make it uh, perhaps more clear which bits of the business do what, let's put it that way. So how big is it now at the moment and what's the size of this trust and what, if anything, can we compare it to? 
Yeah, so we've got it in the UK all companies subsector. Uh, it stands with a market cap of about 180 million. And in fact, in the chairman's report noted they remain ambitious to grow this. I think they talked about a target of 250, 300 million, something like that over the next few years. Uh, and just to bear in mind, when Phoenix Asset Management were appointed manager back in 2016, my recollection is that the fund had a market cap of about £15 million, £20 million. It was very, very small and, and probably off the radars, therefore, of most investors. Um, but it has been successful during that five-year period or so. They have issued new shares uh, and they are now a constituent of the, the FTSE All Share as well. So they will be, uh, they'll see some index buying. But the largest uh, investment trust in that particular subsector will be Fidelity Special Values. So Alex Wright's fund, and that's uh, got a market cap of above £900 million. Okay, so let's move on and talk about something which perhaps is not quite so distinctive, and that is uh, not necessarily wrong for that, but uh, BMO Capital and Income, BCI, uh, they've had some interim results. That's right, interim results uh, to the end of March, in which time their NAV total return was up just over 25%, and that represented an outperformance of the UK market. The FTSE All Share Index was up 18.5%. So this one's managed by a chap called Julian Kane. He's been the manager since, uh, gosh, back end of the 90s, 1997, uh, I seem to remember. And uh, in this particular period, some strong contributors included Arrow Group, Vistry, Countryside Properties, Forterra, Ipstock and OSB Group. Gearing certainly helped their returns as well. In fact, in share price terms, they did even better, up about 26%. But it's uh, worth keeping an eye on the on the dividend story where they're at. So the revenue return per share was actually down 37% year on year to 3.15p. Um, they paid out a dividend totaling 5.25p in respect of that six-month period. And that was a 1% increase year on year. So in other words, the dividend was uncovered. And in fact, in the chairman's report, he obviously noted this and uh, I think he used the expression, we are proud to be an AIC dividend hero. And this is a record we will strive to maintain. So no signs that they're, they're keen to cut their dividend anytime soon. And they do have revenue reserves, to be fair, of about eight, eight and a half million. And that compares with the cost of their, their full year dividend of 12 million. So they've still got quite a bit of firepower in reserve. Yeah. So as long as they don't have another year like last year, which now looks increasingly unlikely. You know, last year we were worried about the fact that if uh, the recovery was pretty slow... And you remember people were talking about L-shaped recoveries and K-shaped recoveries and all sorts of different kind of recoveries. It turns out to be pretty much a V-shaped recovery, I would say. Still some sectors lagging. Uh, but that obviously has relieved a lot of pressure on those trusts which had to call on their reserves to pay their dividend last year. And then let's move on and talk about Shire's income. S-H-R-S is the ticker. Shire's income. Uh, what have they had to say? They had their annual results out for the year to the 31st of March and yeah, a decent set of results. Actually, the NAV total return was up 34 percent and that compared with 26.7 percent for their benchmark in share price terms up 31 percent, not quite as good as NAV, but their, their discount widened out a little bit. So quite an interesting fund. This is part of the Aberdeen Standard Investments Stable. Uh, Ian Pahl is responsible for this one, but it's a, it's a bit of a hybrid portfolio. So um, certainly at the end of April, uh, 84% were in, was invested in equities, 31% in fixed income, so invariably uh, preference shares. And in terms of how those different components worked in this year, uh, the equity portfolio outperformed. The pref shares did even better, 
and then the fact that they were geared really kind of pushed their numbers on. Um, in terms of earnings per share, well, in common with most of their uh, peer group, uh, they were down, but actually relatively modestly. So their, their earnings per share fell about 5% in that financial year uh, to just short of 13p. And uh, the board maintained the dividend at 13.2p, so revenue reserves were used, but uh, in a relatively modest way. And the gearing on this one, uh, well, certainly at the end of April, it stood at just a 15.5%. So we could quickly just compare those two then, I think, uh, BCI and SHRS in terms of how they trade and the, and the yields they offer. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the BMO Capital and Income Fund, um, they're trading on a, on a very small discount at the moment, probably about 1% or 2%, uh, and their yield on a historic basis is 3.6%, and that's just a little bit under their kind of peer group average. Shire's income, again, relatively tight discount, probably about 1% or 2% uh, at the moment. And obviously, they're benefiting from the PREF shares uh, and the gearing and their yield on a historic basis is 5%. So you get the pick up there. Okay, so let's now move on overseas and talk about a couple of trusts there. We're going to start off with uh, JP Morgan European Investment Trust. That's uh, J-E-T-G and J-E-T-I. It's another one of these... uh, dual-class investment trusts. How have they been performing? So uh, JP Morgan European had its annual results out to the end of March, and actually uh, a good set of results here. So the growth leg, or the growth share class, they had had an NAV total return up uh, just short of 41%, and that compared with a rise of the MSCI Europe X UK index of 33.5%. And the income share class, the NAV total return on that one was up just short of 39%. So uh, both did well. And in fact, in share price terms, they did even better. So Jet G, the growth leg was up nearly 54% in the year. And Jet I, so the income leg was up uh, nearly 52%. So substantial outperformance. What really worked for them? Well, in the growth portfolio, it was positive stock selection. Um, some of the cyclical names at technology stocks did uh, particularly well. Uh, on the income side, they were overweight in banks. And actually, some of the stock selection in, amongst their bank selection worked really well for them. And actually, they were underweight uh, defensives, which I suspect benefited them quite a lot as we moved into that kind of vaccine rally. But it's worth noting, actually, the the growth uh, share class has reduced its dividend. Uh, it's re- been reduced from 8.85p to 4.45p, which is a cut of 50%. And that reflects the decline in dividends across the equity markets. However, the income share class has maintained its dividend at 6.7p, uh, with about 20% of that paid from revenue reserves. So just quickly, if we look at how these two trade and how they performed, I mean, has there been much difference in performance between the two of them? One obviously following a a kind of income-ish mandate, the other one looking for more growth, therefore sort of total return. Has there been that much difference in the performance? It's interesting, actually, over the last year, they are exactly in line, which you might not necessarily expect. Over the longer term, so a five-year period, uh, the growth leg is ahead, and and clearly you'd expect that. That's up 74% NAV total return over five years compared with a rise of the FTSE Europe XUK of up 81%, so a slight underperformance. And the income leg, that's up 61%. Uh, and I would suspect that reflects its value uh, or his historically its value bias. Okay, so uh, move on and we'll talk about BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust, BRFI. BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust. There's a bit of a kind of mini fad for Frontier Emerging Market Investment a few years ago. How have they been doing? 
again, a, a good set of results. So this is uh, the six month period to the end of March, in which time the MEV total return was up 29%. Uh, and that compares with their composite uh, benchmark was up 11% or even uh, the MSCI Frontier Markets Index that was up five, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index up 15%. So on all measures, uh, they outperformed. And in share price terms, they did even better. The share price total return was up about 37.5%. So um, they were positioned for a kind of pro-recovery, uh, which obviously benefited for them. Uh, they had uh, quite a few consumer-related names, which worked. And actually, strong returns across all regions as well, uh, where they did maybe uh, hit a few road bumps, were all stock-specific, um, and actually some exposure to Turkey in general proved negative. But they had such holdings as the National Bank of Greece, which was up 130% in that six-month period, or for Expo, that was up 148%. So they certainly had some good winners. But the it's Sam Vecht and Emily Fletcher have been responsible for this one pretty much since the word uh, go when this was launched. And they did see um, a liquidity event. So this investment trust is, is structured so that every five years, uh, shareholders have the chance to uh, tender their shares. And actually during this period, just 21.5% of the share capital was tendered. Okay, so where does that uh, leave it trading? Does it trade well in, in this sector? And uh, how does it compare perhaps to the uh, the more general global emerging market trust? Yeah, so it's on a discount of about 4% or so at the moment. And certainly over the last 12 months, it's averaged a discount of 2.5%. So the fact that there is this mechanism that every five years shareholders are provided with an exit, I think has worked in terms of reducing its discount volatility and invariably it has traded around NAV. In terms of its wider peer groups, so those globally emerging market funds, they have been re-rated this year, I think, as we've discussed before, but the average rating is about 6%, so they are tighter than that. Okay, so we'll move on now and talk about some specialist trusts. Uh, we'll start off with Triple Point Energy Efficiency Infrastructure. Another bit of a mouthful there. Uh, T-E-E-C, not T-E-H-E, T-E, it's T-E-E-C. Uh, and they've had some results since their IPO, which was not so long ago. Uh, absolutely right. It was October 2020, so only last year. And this is covering off the period from that stage to the 31st of March. Uh, and the NAV at the 31st of March was uh, just short of 97.5p. Obviously, they had a 100p issue price back at the IPO. And, and that declining value just reflects costs incurred during the period as uh, they continue to deploy the proceeds. So they declared a dividend of 2p for that uh, period. And that's in line with their target. And in fact, the dividend target for the year ending 31st of March 2022, that's been increased. So originally, they intended or expected to pay a 5p dividend. They're now looking at paying a 5.5p dividend. But there's still a, a bit of work to be done in terms of deploying the proceeds from the IPO. So as at the end of March, the fund was 21% invested. But there's quite a strong pipeline of new investments. And in fact, since that, that period end, they've got additional money, additional capital to work and in fact, the update uh, ran through some of the opportunities that they're seeing. And they talk about over £300 million of pipeline opportunities, including £100 million or so that's under due diligence at the moment. So you'd expect that money to get to work uh, as we go through this year. OK, let's move on and talk about uh, Worldwide Healthcare Trust, WWH. This is a trust, obviously, that invests in healthcare and biotech. They've probably had a good year. They have had a good year. They have had a good year. So this is annual results to the end of March, in which time their NAV total return was up 30%. And that compares with a rise of 16% for their benchmark. 
So what worked for them uh, during this period? Well, it was really stock and sector allocation. Um, in terms of sector contributions, they're weighting towards biotech, uh, emerging markets, in particular Chinese blue chips, um, worked well for them, as did specialty pharma and life science tools. Sterling strength was a headwind. As you might imagine, there's not a massive amount uh, invested in UK companies here. And also the fund was underweight some of the large pharma and biotech companies. But uh, yeah, interesting set of results. Uh, I mean, uh, Sven Borho and Trevor Polishuk, uh, a very experienced management team at Orbimed, and always give a good account of what's going on in the healthcare sector. Um, there's been an increase in the allocation to unquoted. So that's gone up from 1% to 5%. Uh, and actually, they've reduced gearing down a little bit as well. So it's a very actively managed portfolio, this one. And just uh, very briefly again, who does that compete with and, uh, and how does it trade? Well, we've got in the specialist healthcare sector or biotech and healthcare sector to be more precise. So there are a number of more biotech plays, including its sister fund, Biotech Growth Trust, that's also managed by Albumed, but probably their nearest competitor in terms of what they do. I mean, it'd be something like Polar Capital Global Healthcare, which is a slightly different vehicle, and that's trading on a, on a, on a discount of about 10% or so at the moment, whereas Worldwide uh, Healthcare Trust is trading around NAV. I should just say, I'm mentioning here, this week I have done another interview with the director of RTW Venture Fund, which is also a fund that operates in in this particular sector. It's quite interesting if you're interested in this kind of area where there's obviously a lot of growth potential, but also quite a lot of risk if you don't get it right. You might be interested in that. Moving on, let's talk about some property results. We've got PSDL, which is Phoenix Spray Deutschland, which... We noted recently has heard some good news about uh, rental controls in Berlin, where it has a lot of property. But um, what have they had to say this week? So this is not a, a results or an update. Actually, it's it's more an announcement with regard to a buyback. So the board has uh, noted that their share price has been uh, at a material discount at the NAV for a period of time. And they don't believe that that reflects the track record of the underlying portfolio and positive outlook. So actually, they have been buying back shares, but they're looking to kind of step that up. And that follows, as we discussed a week or two ago, uh, the positive ruling on Berlin rent controls. So now the fund wants to get on a kind of more proactive buyback uh, strategy and basically to narrow that discount between the share price and the NAV. So the markets uh, responded well to that. And in fact, the share price was up 9% on the back of that news. Yeah, well, that seems to suggest that people... uh may share their view about residential property, this time uh, not in the UK, but in Germany. And then let's talk about Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust, SREI. They've had their annual results out, so you might as well cover those. Yeah, that's right. So they had annual results to the end of March, uh, in which time they generated an NAV total return of just short of 4%. So, again, there's uh, lots of moving parts, as you'd expect, with a, particular, with a property fund at the moment. Uh, but the portfolio has been valued at $439 million, so a decent size fund, quite a lot of activity in the period. Uh, they gave uh, an update in terms of their rent collection. So 90% of the rent due for the financial year 2021, uh, so in other words, this period has been uh, collected. So a little bit of work to be done there. But in terms of the total dividends declared, that was down year on year. So it was one spot 59p per share declared for their financial year 2021. And that compares with 2.72p in the previous financial year. 
However, the quarterly dividend uh, has been stepped up and in fact, they've increased it again by 5%. So this is something that we've seen across a number of these property funds that uh, either suspended or cut their dividends last year uh, during obviously that huge period of uh, uncertainty and now feeling more confident and as rent collection levels are going back up, they're happy to reflect that in their dividend levels. Okay, so we've got a couple of items still to discuss and one of them, you may not be surprised to hear, features our old friends at Hypnosis Songs Fund. We've been a bit starved of news from them recently. That song, S-O-N-G, Hypnosis Songs Fund, you know, this has been another week when it may be a short week, but they've managed to squeeze out an announcement this week, Simon. Tell me more. Yep, they've been busy again. They've been busy again. And in fact, this week they've acquired uh, the music catalogue of uh, a gentleman called Joel Little. I'm not sure if that's a name familiar to you. Um, it certainly wasn't familiar to me, but actually he's a, a New Zealander. He's only 38, a relatively young chap. He kind of uh, cut his teeth in the music business, being a singer and guitarist of a pop punk band called Goodnight Nurse which I'm not familiar with their work, but I'm sure quite entertaining. But he's been, since then, become better known from working with artists such as Lord Taylor Swift, Imagine Dragons and Sam Smith. So his songs have generated in excess of 15 billion streams, which is quite mind-blowing, really. Uh, and the catalogue that uh, Hypnosis has acquired comprises publishing a writer's share of income, about 178 songs, including 52 number one hits. So this catalogue generated 4.3 million US dollars in 2019. Uh, and again, this is a hypnosis providing more colour. But uh, certainly they seem to be quite excited about it. And just actually, if people are interested in, in hearing the hypnosis story, I'm going to plug, if it's OK, a, a rival podcast. Um, there was an interview with Mert Mercurius, the man behind hypnosis, and another podcast in the markets with Fred and Rory that came out a few weeks ago. Uh, that A, was very entertaining, but actually B, quite informative of what they're trying to, to do there. Well, we certainly want to find out about that. But yeah, interesting, Joel Little, if he's, as I see, is not even yet 40 years old, and yet he's he's managed to, uh, no doubt, his interest here is not so much in uh, getting a retirement income, though I'm sure that would be helpful, but in uh, presumably they're going to promise to work his catalogue, get more money out of it than he's already made. So good luck to him. Let's finish then by talking about Pershing Square Holdings. And this is not unrelated in a curious way. Pershing Square Holdings, as you know, is, a, is one of the hedge fund investment trusts uh, run by a gentleman called Bill Ackman, who has not been without his controversial moments, um, rather like uh, Dan Lope, who we mentioned last week. But Pershing Square Holdings had a terrific couple of years, has to be said. But they are also in the SPAC business. And they made an announcement this week which does affect Pershing Square Holdings. But... Um, it's somewhat complicated, I think it's fair to say, the announcement, but I know, Simon, that you'll be able to explain it to us in words of one <laughs> syllable. <laughs> so let's have a go at explaining what it is that Percy Square Holdings have said they're going to do uh, with their SPAC and uh, what, if anything, it means for um, Pershing Square Holdings itself. There we go. This is the ultimate hospital pass at the end of the podcast. Okay, so Pershing Square, uh, there's an outfit called Pershing Square Tontine Holdings, which was set up last year as a SPAC, as you rightly say, and we knew that Bill Ackman and his team were looking for a suitable private company to kind of reverse into this, this SPAC. So we've been waiting for some time and they've made it clear that they've been very selective, which of course is the right thing to do. This week, we learnt the identity of their target company. And it's a slightly different to what we probably were expecting. So the headline is that they are in discussions with Vivendi to acquire 10% of the shares in Universal Music Group. And they've agreed a price of around about $4 billion, uh, which values Universal Music Group, therefore, uh, of about $35 billion. 
So the idea is that they will acquire this 10% stake in Universal Music Group, which will later in the year, the intention is that it will be listed on the Euronext Amsterdam market. So it will effectively IPO at that stage, at which time the shares in Universal Music Group will be distributed out to the Tontine shareholders. So what will they be left with? Well, actually, there's still going to be a bit of cash in the vehicle. And the idea is that Pershing Square will, will continue to review, as it, as it puts it, he will seek new business partners. So it will look for a another deal. So this is you know, perhaps a little bit different to what we, we expected. And there are a few bells and whistles, it's fair to say, in this particular deal that it is probably worth understanding. But what I can tell you is that there's certainly the market reaction to it has not been massively positive. So in the US market, Tontine was down, the share price was down 10% on this news. Um, Pershing Square Holdings was off about 2 or 3% in trade on Friday after this was uh, announced. So an interesting development. And I think if there's something to be taken away from it is that the Pershing Square Holdings is a more complicated investment company than perhaps most others. And deals like this, uh, although are interesting undoubtedly, and who knows, may ultimately make a lot of money, that remains to be seen. But uh, the kind of casual investor um, provokes quite a few questions. Yes, because there are so many different routes that this could take. And you have to track through warrants and all sorts of other things which may or may not get converted and so on. But I think it's interesting because when it, when this was announced, the SPAC or Special Purpose Acquisition Company, as a give it its full name, was announced last year. I remember listening to Bill Ack when he was saying how this was a much more shareholder-friendly vehicle than the normal SPACs, where basically the sponsors get a very good deal and the shareholders who come in later at IPO and so on get a much worse deal. And a lot of people wonder whether that's actually the right you know, set of incentives for everybody. But he was making great much play of that. But he hasn't actually found a merger partner yet, basically, essentially, what he's doing here. So it's almost like a sort of holding operation, hopefully going to make some money out of it and then move on through the next vehicle into something else. So it's, uh, it's certainly very complicated. And if you can get your head around it, then you, uh, you might be able to work out whether it's good news or bad news for Pershing Square Holdings. But it has to be said, the initial market reaction, as you say, has not been perhaps universal acclaim. But maybe that's just because people haven't had time to absorb it and work it out. But the relevance, of course, is that Universal Music itself is in the music royalty and musician management business. In fact, it is the number one company in that business. So actually, it is. if it comes back to the market, it will give us a clue on you know, more about uh, details about this whole business and what it could be worth. And therefore, it could have some kind of you know, spin-off effect for uh, hypnosis and for Roundhill Music Royalty Fund. So it is of interest. If you're interested in this area, certainly worth having a look at this because... They will, if it is spun off for uh, Universal Music, will have to give a lot of information about the music royalty business. And you can therefore do even more homework on this fascinating but rather intriguing business that all these trusts are in. So that's, I think, is all we have time for this week, Simon. Thank you very much. It's been a short week, but not without interest, as always. And we have got a new artist to investigate, find out more about down in New Zealand. Uh, it seems to have had a very good uh, uh, pandemic like New Zealand generally. Uh, so anyway thank you for that we'll look forward to uh, talking again next week we've got a full week next week and we'll hope for some more interesting news about the investment trust sector this has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast 
These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.